Good morning, Genesis Church. For those of you who, uh, who may not know me, my name's Kirk Matthews. I'm an elder here. And uh, a couple times a year, I have the privilege of bringing God's word through my preaching. Um, and I thought it might take just a second to let you know how that kind of came about. Uh, we, if you're new here or relatively new to Genesis, about two, three years ago, our, our lead pastor, our lead teaching elder, Mike Hubbard, thought it might be wise for the church to hear some other voices on occasion. And so he created a preaching cohort. He uh, put together a course to teach uh, four of us, four men in our fellowship, uh, how to exposit the scripture, how to apply it and understand what it meant to the original readers of that text and how it might apply to our lives today. And it was a, about an eight-month course or something like that. If you don't know, Mike is eminently qualified to teach such a course. Um, he doesn't talk about this much, but Mike has a bachelor's degree in theology, a master's degree in divinity, in divinity and a doctorate in ministry. He teaches courses at Missouri Baptist. He still does that to this day. And every time I uh, have the opportunity to preach, I'm just reminded of the, the great work and effort that Mike goes through every week. I really appreciate you, man. I just thought it might be good for those who are relatively new to understand that. Don't worry, Mike will be back preaching next week and uh, starting a new series that I'm really excited about. It'll be called The Recipe. And it's going to walk us through a recipe that we are adopting as elders to fulfill our mission to make disciples, to make followers of Jesus. So stay tuned. Please don't miss that. Um, So Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you guys. How many of you made a, uh, a New Year's resolution? A few? Not, not all that many? Yeah, okay, I see this. Yeah, that's kind of like me. Bigger question. You don't have to raise your hand on this one. How many of you have already broken one or more of your New Year's resolutions? Oh, okay. We have some honest, uh, honest folks here. You know, I, why do we make resolutions anyway? I've, I've kind of wondered about that. Um, I don't make necessarily resolutions, but it's, it's because we want to see a change in our lives somehow, right? We want to do something different next year. We want to be better in some way. But what's, what's magic about New Year's Day? You know, that that's the, okay. There's something about the changing of time, the, the, that mark on the calendar that gives us kind of hope for, okay, maybe we can start anew, start afresh. I will tell you my own New Year's uh, journey this year. My sort of uh, promise to myself was to try to eat less sweets, and my wife's probably already laughing, uh, and to try to not eat after six o'clock in the evening. You try to have that time between my last meal and when I go to sleep, and that's supposed to be healthy for you and everything. And so this this week after New Year's, uh, my wife makes these cookies every Christmas. She calls them raspberry peekaboos. And they're, they're kind of a soft oatmeal cookie with a raspberry jam filling. And they are killer. I just, I, I love them. And this week, I was walking through the kitchen. Jane had already gone to bed. It was kind of later in the evening. And there was a bag of them sitting on the, on the kitchen countertop. And I walked past those things and I kind of looked at them. And friends, I'm telling you, they kind of became like um, the Edgar Allan Poe, a telltale heart. <laughs> they were like 
boom, boom, boom. I kept finding, making excuses to go into the kitchen and walk past those cookies. So I decided to reset the clock and decide that the next day, which was actually going to be January 5th, would be my New Year's Day. And you know, I ate every one of those cookies up till midnight that night and, and, and completely, completely broke my promise to myself. But as we look to the new year, we can't help think about what, what's, that new, what's the new year going to bring? Uh, and what changes are going to happen to me or in me or through me or around me? And uh, church, we live in a rapidly changing world. You think about how fast change can come at us these days. And sometimes that change is good. Sometimes it brings heartache. Um, but it almost always can bring anxiety and, and wondering what's it going to bring. You know, as we sit here and uh, we begin to look at 2024, what might, be, might, what might be good change coming at us? Well, the good Lord winning, we will be in a new building before the end of 2024. Amen. <laughs> and, and I think about that. I think about uh, artificial intelligence. That might be a good thing. Kids can write a term paper in two minutes. Or a bad thing. It might be replacing jobs. You know, there's lots of things that we can be anxious about. In fact, I put a few of them on a, on a slide here. What 2024 is going to bring. How will the war in Israel conclude? What, what about the war in Ukraine? Is China going to invade Taiwan? Uh, what about the economy? Who's going who's to win this election? And what will that mean for me? Will the interest rates come down like we think they're supposed to? Um, all these things that can create anxiety for us. Or... Perhaps the one thing that millions and millions of people are anxious to know about in 2024 is, will Taylor dump Travis if they don't go to the Super Bowl? (laughs) And I I kind of threw that one in there to add a little levity because, and, and to say there are lots of things that we worry about that we don't need to be worrying about, right? But some of these big things are, you know, are concerning Change and uncertainty often leads to fear and doubt. What is the one thing that causes the stock market to to dive? It's uncertainty in the markets. They look for certainty. So how do we avoid that fear and that doubt? How do we function in this ever-changing world? And church, the answer is, is clear, that we lean on an unchanging God. And that's the focus of my remarks today. So if you have a Bible or an app, if you would open it, please, to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 8. Now, if you don't have a Bible, there's some in the aisles that look like this. Feel free to grab one. And if you don't have one at home, please feel free to take that with you and, uh, as, our, as our gift to you. Now, there are tons of verses in Scripture that point to the unchanging nature of God, the immutability of God. And, uh, but this one I really love, and it's seemingly quite simple. Hebrews 13, 8 simply says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Now, I characterize that as a seemingly simple verse because there may be a lot more to unpack here than initially meets the eye. First thing I'd like us to think about is how change is inextricably connected to time, right? No matter what topic you're on, if you're trying to understand change, 
if you're studying some data, every measure of change is studied relative to time. How much change occurred relative to a specific measure of time. But church, we need to really remember at this point that time is a creation of God. God created time. The concept of time is part of God's incredible creative work for our good and for his glory. Before creation began, before God began and started the creative process, time did not exist. But our God did in the form of our Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The study of physics teaches us that, no, that matter, time, and space must all occur together. If there's no matter, such as the the, the way it was before God began creation, there can be no time or space. When God began to create the universe, that's when time began. And there began this succession of moments and events, one after the other. Genesis 1-1 captures this concept completely. You guys all, probably all have Genesis 1-1 memorized. In the beginning, there's time. God created the heavens, there's space, and, and the earth. There's matter. Psalm 90 verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now we need to see and understand that as the creator of time, God is not bound by time like like we are. God is present in eternity past, in our present day, and in eternity future. Wayne Grudem, the theologian, explains it like this. God sees all of time equally vividly, with equal clarity. We are probably all familiar with 2 Peter 3, verse 8, which tells us this. With the Lord, one day is as thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Grudem explains it like this. In God's perspective, any extremely long period of time, like a thousand years, is as if it just happened. It's that clear to him. And any short period of time, such as one day, seems to God to last forever. It never ceases to be present in his consciousness. Thus, God sees and knows all events, past, present, and future, with equal clarity and vividness. Now, Grudem goes on to say, this should never cause us to think that God does not see events in time and act in time for his glory and our good, but actually just the opposite. As eternal Lord and sovereign God over all of history, over the events of mankind, he sees time and acts in it more clearly and more decisively than any other. Now, to illustrate this point, I want to take us through a, a quick little walk through a, a couple of Old Testament passages. Um, to, just to show you something regarding how God is so sovereign and how he orchestrates the events of history and time and certain dates and time relative to his redemptive plan. Now, we've all heard Mike preach many times that everything in the Old Testament points us forward to our Savior Jesus, right? Every story in the Old Testament points us forward. In the Genesis account, 
Uh, in, the Genesis, in the book of Genesis, we have the account of Noah and the ark. I'm sure all of you are familiar with that story. Uh, how the earth, the people of the earth had become so sinful, God had decided to destroy the entire population with a flood, but elected to save Noah and his family through the ark. So if you can turn quickly to Genesis chapter 8, verse 4, I just would like to, to draw your eyes to something there. This is in Genesis chapter 8, verse 4. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. On the seventeenth day of the month, the seventh month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. Now, the description of Noah's story in Genesis takes a little over three chapters. There's chapters, part of it in chapter 6, all of 7 and 8, and part of chapter 9. So why do you think, why do you think God gave us the exact month and day when the ark came to rest? In other words, the day, the very day when God completed the salvation of the human race through Noah, the human race at that time. And now for the sake of time, I won't go into the structure of the Hebrew calendar, but suffice it to say The calendar referred to in this passage about Noah is what can be known as the civil calendar. And the seventh month of that calendar was known as Nisan. Not the the automaker, but the the month of Nisan. So keep that date in your mind, the 17th day of Nisan. The day God completed the salvation of the human race at that time through Noah. Now if we fast forward to the book of Exodus we get to the story of the Israelites' deliverance from slavery out of Egypt. In chapter 11 of the book of Exodus, the Lord tells Moses of his plan for one final plague on Egypt, the death of every household's firstborn where the blood of the lamb is not displayed on the, go- on the doorpost. And in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 12, God resets the Hebrew calendar. If you look at Exodus chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, it says, The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you the beginning of months. It shall be the first month of the year for you. And the month that he was referring to was the month of Nisan. So from this date forward, the Hebrew calendar held Nisan as the first month of the year. And some refer this, to this as the Hebrew spiritual calendar. And there's a slide of what the Hebrew calendar looks like uh, compared to the Gregorian calendar. Uh, I think we have it. Yeah. And you can see how Nisan is, is, character, is the first month of the year. And you see how it lines up with our calendar uh, that it kind of straddles the months of March and April. And the Hebrew calendar was built more around agriculture. When the, when the planting season came and the harvest season for the various crops... But Nisan, the first month, kind of straddles March and April in in our calendar. So back to our story of Moses. Later in this 12th chapter of Exodus, we learn that it was the 14th day of the month of Nisan that God instructed the Israelites to kill the lamb, paint their doorways with its blood, and that night at midnight, the Lord took the life of the firstborn of Egypt where that blood was not displayed an event known as Passover. Now, there are a lot of scholars that believe that it took the Israelites three days, and and that was the night that Pharaoh said, leave. 
And you remember the Israelites left in haste and they, they ate unleavened bread. They, they, they plundered the values of Egypt and they left hastily. And there are scholars that believe that it took them three days to get and cross the Red Sea. That date which they were finally, when God completed the salvation of the Israelites from the hand of Egypt's Pharaoh on the 17th day of Nisan. The same day that God, that the ark came to rest in the mountains of Ararat. Now if we fast forward to the book of Esther. You remember that uh, evil Haman had manipulated the king into a decree that would result in the execution, the complete annihilation of the Jewish race. We studied that book not long ago here at, uh, at Genesis Church. In chapter three of the book of Esther, the author explains in detail that on the 13th day of the first month, Nisan, the decree was written and sent out. And you remember from the story, what did Esther do immediately upon learning of this decree? She called the people to a three-day fast. And on that third day, which would be the 16th of Nisan, she went before the king and invited the king and Haman to a feast the following day, the 17th day of Nisan. When the, she persuaded the king to reverse his decree and the entire race of Jewish people were saved from annihilation. on the 17th day of Nisan. And finally, if you've ever tracked the chronology of the Holy Week, when our Lord and Savior went to the cross and came out of the grave, he came out of the grave on the 17th day of Nisan. See, I, I, I refuse to believe, I refuse to believe that that is a coincidence, that our God is the same yesterday and today and forever. And he orchestrates the events of mankind for his good, for our good and his glory. Because you think about that, the ark came to rest. There are historians that have tracked these years down. The ark came to rest in the year 2457 BC, 2400 years before the birth of Christ. The Israelites were led out of Egypt a thousand years later. Another thousand years later, God saved the Jews through Esther's faithfulness. And it was approximately 483 years later when Jesus was born. This is not coincidental. Our church, our, our faith rests on an unchanging God who, who is not bound by time. Now, I hope this little excursion through those dates deepens your belief that we have a trustworthy God. And when our text tells us that, that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever, we can rest assured that means God is unchangeable from eternity past through our present day and for our eternity future, regardless of what this next year might hold for us. So why is that important? Why does it matter that God doesn't change through the ages? So what if maybe he changed a little bit? Or, or decided something to pursue something a little bit differently. Well, again, Wayne Grudem describes the critical importance of this doctrine of unchangeability like this. He says, if we stop for a moment to imagine what it would be like if God could change, the importance of this doctrine becomes clear. 
For example, if God could change in his being or purpose, then any change would be either for the better or for the worse. But if God changed for the better, then he was not the best possible being when we first trusted him. And how can we be sure that he is the best possible being now? And if God changed for the worse, then what kind of God might he become? Might he become, for instance, a a little bit evil rather than wholly good? And, And if he could become a little bit evil, how do we know he would not change and become wholly evil? And we could do nothing about it. He is so much more powerful and great than we are. The idea that God could change leads to the horrible possibility that thousands of years from now, we might come to live forever in a universe dominated by a holy, evil, and omnipotent God, and it's hard to imagine anything more terrifying. How could we ever trust such a God who could change? How could we ever commit our lives to him? Church family, the fact that God is unchangeable through the ages is completely central and important to our faith. If he is not, then the foundation of our faith begins to crumble. And that's because our faith, our hope, and our knowledge all ultimately depend on a person who is infinitely worthy of our trust, our unchanging God. But what does it mean that Jesus is the same, that that he is unchangeable? What are some of the things that we benefit from that he never changes. My first point is Jesus is the same in his being. That is to say, he has never changed who he is. His word tells us that Jesus is prophet, priest, and king. His word tells us that Jesus is a lot more than that, but let's just start with those three. Prophet, priest, and king. Author and pastor Matthew Richard describes how Jesus is our prophet, priest, and king. In the Old Testament, three different kinds of people take center stage in the story of God's salvation, all pointing forward to Jesus. And those three types of people are prophets, priests, and kings. These offices were real and were held by real people. Prophets rebuked sin and proclaimed mercy to the crushed and interpreted events of the past, present, and future. Prophets were representing God to the people, speaking the word of the Lord. They functioned as mediators, proclaiming only what was revealed to them. Moses spoke, acted, and occupied the office of a prophet, bringing about genuine redemption for the Hebrew people. Old Testament priests, priests, on the other hand, functions as representatives of the people to God. Offering gifts of sacrifice for sins on behalf of men in relation to God. Priests like Aaron, Moses' brother, offered up goats as a substitute so that through these means the forgiveness of sins could be distributed. Kings in the Old Testament functioned in the realm of exercising judicial power in the civil realm. And were oftentimes military figures who had led military campaigns. Kings like David established a dynasty that lasted over 400 years. But how does the greater reality of Jesus Christ supersede these characters and offices of the Old Testament? The answer is the three offices of prophet, priest, and king are combined by and culminate in Christ. And Jesus is 
fully present as our prophet. He is fully present as our priest, and he is fully present as our king. As a prophet, Jesus stands in the office as Moses once did. However, as we see in Hebrews 1.1, 1, 1, Jesus is greater than all the other prophets in the Old Testament because in him, God came and lived in human flesh while teaching and proclaiming on the earth. Whereas Moses' message spoke of the prophets to come, of the prophet to come, Jesus as a prophet spoke of himself. Jesus' message did not point ahead beyond him for he is not only the alpha but the omega point of the Old Testament. Without a doubt, Moses was a great prophet. But in Christ, we have the Lord of the prophets. In Christ, we do not have a mere man, but God himself. As a high priest, Jesus acts on behalf of humanity. Just as the high priest Aaron did for the people of Israel, as we see in Hebrews 10, however, Jesus is greater than the priests of old. For he does not offer up perpetual sacrifices like the priests of old had to do, but rather he offers up only one sacrifice for the sins of the world himself. He offered and shed not the blood of bulls and goats, but that blood was his own shed for us. The reason why the blood of Christ is sufficient and exceeds the blood of the bulls and the goats is that Christ's blood has immeasurable redeeming value. The high priest was a sinner who had to offer sacrifices not only for the people, but for himself as well. Consequently, consequently, he was not the Savior, but rather he was one who needed a Savior like those he served. But in Jesus, we have that Savior, the great high priest. And as king, everything, everything is put in subjection under Jesus' feet. As a man, he has dominion over earth and creatures due to the laws of creation. However, he has greater authority than the average person and greater authority than that of earthly kings. His authority is due to the fact that he is the heir of all things. For through him, the Father and the Holy Spirit created everything that exists. Indeed, as we contemplate the Old Testament office of king, We move past individuals and dynasties like David's to the climax of the one great king and his dynasty that has no end. As true king, Jesus received the mighty inheritance. It is in his hand because he came to earth and completed his great saving work. So church, sort of like a funnel, the three offices of prophet, priest, and king merge and culminate in the person of Jesus Christ. The same yesterday, today, and forever. Moses was the great prophet. Christ is the Lord of the prophets. Priests like Aaron offered up sacrifices on behalf of Israel each year. Christ, the great high priest, offered up himself once and for all. Kings of old had limited dominion and limited dynasties. Christ's dominion is over all things and extends forever. What this means is we have a sole prophet, Jesus Christ, who proclaims to us the words of life unto our salvation. Christ's word of forgiveness for us. We have a sole priest who reconciles by his own body and blood. Christ shed blood on the cross. We have a sole king who exercises complete and just authority over the universe and the church. 
Christ's authority over us. We have the quintessential prophet, priest, and king who is for us, acts on our behalf, and is not over us, and is over us and, in the same, and is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So not only is Jesus the same in his being, my second point, Jesus is the same in his purpose and in his doctrine. Jesus' purpose is to become one with his church, to provide salvation for sinful men and women, for you and for me. And it is for this purpose he became obedient unto death, even death on the cross. Church, his purpose has not, cannot, and will not change. The doctrine of salvation, how people come to salvation in Christ Jesus, is the same today and is as real today as it was when, to Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus. There is no new path to salvation. There is no new revelation <clears throat> that we can be saved by our works, even though so many belief systems today try to convince us otherwise. Salvation comes to men when they receive it by faith. You all know Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not a result of work, so that no man may boast. The, Jesus' purpose and doctrine is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Jesus is the same in his methods. Now this was an interesting concept to me. When I, every time I have the opportunity to preach, uh, once I've selected a text and kind of a theme, I, I try and go and do research and read what other, what other theologians have taught or preached on. I, almost, I always, without fail, come back and read sermons by Charles Spurgeon, the great preacher uh, from, the late, uh, from the middle 1800s. And uh, he actually uh, taught, preached two sermons on this exact text, that one simple single line that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And uh, he, he taught about a point of Jesus' methods. The methods by which Jesus accomplishes his purpose have not changed. And uh, I, I thought about this, I, I read this over and over again, and I thought that I, there's no way I can do it justice hitting the same points that he did. So if you'll allow me, I'm going to read a couple excerpts from Charles Spurgeon. Uh, he preached this sermon on February 28th. 1888 and you'll see the similarities of how it's still valid today how did jesus christ save souls in the olden time it pleased god by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe and if you will look down through church history you will find that wherever there has been a great revival of religion it has been linked to the preaching of the gospel ah my dear friends the world will not be saved by Methodist doctors or by Baptist doctors or anything of the sort, but multitudes will be saved by God's grace through preachers. It is the preacher to whom God has entrusted this great work. Jesus said, preach the gospel to every creature, but oh, today men are getting tired of this divine plan. They are going to be saved by the priest, going to be saved by the music, going to be saved by theatricals, and nobody knows what else. Well, they may try these things as long as ever they like, but nothing can ever come of the whole thing but utter disappointment and confusion. God dishonored, the gospel travestied, hypocrites by the thousands, and the church dragged down to the levels of the world. 
Stand by your guns, brethren, and go on preaching and teaching nothing but the word of God. For it pleases God still by the foolishness of preaching to save them that believe. And this text still stands true. Jesus Christ, the same yesterday, today, and forever. But remember, there must always be the prayers of the saints with the preaching of the gospel. Some say nowadays that prayer meetings are religious expedients pretty well worn out. Well, you may try to do without prayer meetings if you like, but my solemn conviction is that as these decline, the Spirit of God will depart from you and the preaching of the gospel will be of small account. There is no change in this matter since Paul's day. God is still to be inquired of by the house of Israel to do it for them, and he still grants blessings in answer to believers' prayers. And remember, too, that all the good that is ever done in the world is wrought by the Holy Ghost. And as the Holy Spirit honors Jesus Christ, so he puts great honor on the Holy Spirit. If you and I try, either as a church or as individuals, to do without the Holy Spirit, God will soon do without us. His will will be accomplished, whether we're along with him or not. Our prayer must ever be, Holy Spirit, dwell in me. Holy Spirit, dwell with thy servants. We know that we are utterly dependent on him. Such is the teaching of our master, and Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Church, I believe every word that Charles Spurgeon spoke on that day in 1888 holds true for us today. Jesus' methods... For reaching the lost today demands that we, each and every one of us, be faithful to preach the word of the gospel. To pray fervently and to rely on the Holy Spirit for the results. These same methods were true, as he said, in Paul's day. They were true in Spurgeon's day. And they are still true today, regardless of what this new year holds for us. Regardless of the fears that, and anxiety that that might generate in us. We can lean on the unchanging God. And Jesus is the same in his love. And this is the part that blows me away the most. The unconditional love that Jesus demonstrated when he went to the cross is today directed directly at you and at me. The infinite, almighty creator, king of the universe who is completely unbound and unconstrained by time, knows you. He loves you. He knows what you're going to face this year, and he's saying, lean on me. He is trustworthy. He is trustworthy to remain unchanged, regardless of what changes might come this week, this month, this year. And my question for you is, what are you facing this year that's bigger than him? What are you facing? You know, there, there's, I'm sure there are people here today that are facing uncertainty. Maybe there's, maybe you have a challenged relationship with a loved one. Lean on the unchanging God. Maybe you have a 
you're facing a year with uncertain health, maybe there's health challenges that you are experiencing, or a loved one that you have, lean on the unchanging God. Maybe you don't know what this year will hold for your job. Maybe your income is insecure. Lean on the unchanging God. So I'd like to close again here with some words that Charles Purgeon spoke to close his sermon. He said, let us go forward then to the unchanging Savior through the changing things of time and sense and we shall meet him soon in glory and he will be unchanged even there as compassionate and loving to us when we shall get home to see him in his splendor. And then Spurgeon said, oh, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you know the creator, king of the universe, who created the time that we worry about? Do you know him? If not, may this be the day that he reveals himself to you. I'm going to ask the band to come forward. And we will again. And, I, and my, I stepped up here today with a really full heart. A really full heart. In part thanks to our worship team and, the, and how they took us before God's very throne this morning in our praise and worship of, the, of our almighty God. And I want you to know that as we, we do this every week, and as we sing our last song, there will be some folks over here that would be really happy to spend time with you. Maybe you're here today and <clears throat> you're just checking out what this Jesus thing is all about or what church is all about. They'd be happy to talk to you about that. Maybe you want to know more about Genesis Church and, and this family of believers. We'd be happy to talk to you about that. Maybe you are, maybe the Holy Spirit touched your heart a little bit this morning and you'd, and you'd like to have someone pray with you over some of the uncertainties that you might face this coming year. We would be so thrilled to do that. I don't want us to skip past that uh, lightly. If, if there's something that we can help you with, find me after the service or talk with one of our folks over here or find Mike. We would love to share with you. Would you pray with me, please? Lord God, we praise you this morning. We worship you this morning. We acknowledge that you are almighty, sovereign, creator, king. Lord, we know that you created the emotions that we experience, Lord. We know that you have a deep love for us. Father, as we face the challenges of a crazy changing world and the uncertainty that that brings, Father, may we have your peace the peace that we can only find in resting on you. We thank you and praise you that you are unchangeable, that you have not changed through the ages, Lord, that you orchestrate time and history and the events of mankind for your glory. And Father, we give you that glory this morning. Father, we love you and we praise you and we commit this special time to you and you alone. In the mighty name of your son, Jesus, amen.